January 24 trivia quiz. This one is all about West Virginia. Written and read for you by me, Tamala Rich. This is the audio uh, podcast version of my Substack, which you can also click through and um, see the pictures of the things that I'm talking about today. Hello, friends. I hope your December was better than mine. I came down with COVID and basically napped my way through the last two weeks of 2023. The fatigue is unreal. I managed to listen to a couple of good books and to catch up on my podcasts, some of which I'll list in the intermission between the questions and answers for this month's quiz. And while I was listening to podcasts and books, I knitted a new scarf, which I've pictured on uh, on my news on my Substack. It is um, three different colorways of Malabrigo wool yarn from Uruguay. It's buttery soft. I just love it. Now, if you come down with something this year, my best advice is to be sick. Don't half-ass your respite as it will only prolong your misery. Be sick and then be well. Now, of course, this advice applies to those who aren't a brief illness away from homelessness, of which there are too many in this country. All right, this month, we'll focus on the interesting history of America's 35th state, West Virginia. Before we begin, ask yourself what you might have been taught or picked up or assumed about the reasons that West Virginia split from Virginia. I knew it had, I mean, vaguely, I knew it had something to do with slavery since it happened when Virginia seceded, but that preserving slavery wasn't the point of staying in the Union. Beyond that, I was a blank slate before starting the 981 Project. It never occurred to me that the Northwest Territory's slavery boundary north of the Ohio River played an oversized role in the drama. Did the Northwestern counties of Virginia form their own state out of abhorrence to slavery? Was it the preponderance of the Scots-Irish and German immigrants in the area who couldn't abide it? Was it a strong allegiance to the Union? Why did West Virginia decide to stay in the Union when Virginia didn't? Now, I've taken several of this month's quiz questions from answers in a new book called The Fifth Border State, Slavery, Emancipation, and the Formation of West Virginia, 1829 to 1872, by Scott A. McKenzie. The author argues that West Virginians experienced the Civil War in the same ways that as the border states of Missouri, Maryland, Kentucky, and Delaware. These states were pro-Union and pro-slavery. So, with a hint of what's ahead that I just gave you. Let's go to the quiz. I have 10 questions. Here's how it works. I'm uh, In the written version, I just have the questions and then I answer in the footnotes. But for my podcast version, what I do is I read the question and give you a little time to think about it. And then I'll say three, two, one, and I'll give you the answer. So if I get to three, two, one, and you don't have your answer yet, just hit pause. And then when you're ready, 
you can come back. Okay, question one. Which was the largest slaveholding state before the Civil War? All right, now I've given you a big hint to this because we're talking about West Virginia here. Three, two, one. In 1860, Virginia's population of 1.5 million included 400,000 slaves. So the answer is Virginia. Number two, before the Civil War, which then Virginian city on the Ohio River did a brisk business in slaves that were headed for New Orleans, the, the country's largest market? All right, city on the Ohio River did a brisk business in slaves Three, two, one. The answer is Wheeling. Lines of shackled slaves passed through Wheeling on the National Road and later were transported by railroad to be sold down the river. Held in pens nearby, slaves sometimes escaped with the assistance of conductors on the Underground Railroad based in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. Opposition to the slave trade in Wheeling eventually rerouted much of the traffic east Alexandria, Virginia. And in the substack, I have a picture of um, the, the slave market as a uh, historical, uh, historical site in Wheeling, West Virginia that you can see. All right, question number three. Virginia's first constitution, 1776, limited suffrage to white male property holders, and slaves were definitely considered property. This tilted representation to slaveholders of the, of the Tidewater and Piedmont regions. With planters settling the state's legislative agenda and tax policy, the rest of the population felt it got short shrift in government services while paying disproportionately high taxes. By 1850, White European immigrants were entering the region in droves, notably the Irish and Germans, and the percentage of enslaved residents, while never high in that part of the state, was trending downward. Okay, with that in mind, what percentage of the population in the three largest northwestern counties of what was then Virginia, what percentage of them were enslaved in 1850? 10 years, 11 years before the Civil War. The three largest northwestern counties of Virginia enslaved how many by percentage? Was it 6.2%, 4.9%, or 2%? All right, what percentage of the population in the three largest northwestern counties of Virginia were enslaved in 1850? Three two, one. It was C, 2%. In 1830, the enslaved population was 6.2%. By 1840, it was 4.9%. And by 1850, it was 2%. According to Wheeling historian Margaret Brennan, the roots of Wheeling trace back to slave culture. But we were an industrial power, the Germans and Irish immigrants did not support slavery. It was a divided city. All right. And, and there really wasn't, you know, enough land, arable land up there to, um, 
you know, put the plantation system uh, into, into play. Number four, Lincoln was elected in November 1860. On New Year's Day, 1861, the white citizens of Parkersburg met to discuss secession after considering a move taken by South Carolina. Okay, we have a sequence of events. November 1860, Lincoln is elected. He's not inaugurated yet, but he's elected. Something happened between then and New Year's Day, 1861, when the white citizens of Parkersburg met to discuss secession. What was that South Carolina event that took place? Three, two, one. South Carolina seceded on December 20, 1860. Just four days after secession, South Carolina issued issued their, quote, declaration of the immediate causes which induce and justify the secession of South Carolina from the federal union. And someone needs to share this with Nikki Haley. The document offered a legal justification for secession and discussed how the federal government had failed to uphold its constitutional obligations to South Carolina. South Carolina's declaration argued that the non-slaveholding states had, quote, denounced as sinful the institution of slavery, end quote, and had, quote, encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes, and those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books, and pictures to servile insurrection, end quote. The document then indirectly referenced the election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency as a contributing factor. Quote, a geographical line has been drawn across the Union, and all the states north of that line have united in the election of a man to the high office of president of the United States, whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery. End quote. According to South Carolina's declaration, Secession occurred because of threats, both real and perceived, to the institution of slavery. Okay, that's the answer in South Carolina's own words. Uh, Okay, question number five. The Commonwealth of Virginia called a constitutional convention for February 4, 1861. The districts in Northwestern Virginia sent 32 delegates to the convention out of 135 total. Now, what, here's the question. What was the predominating mindset of these Northwestern delegates? They were considering secession. Remember that. What was, what were the people from the Northwestern uh, counties mindset? Were they A, Fast ultimatumists who insisted on demanding Lincoln acquiesce to Southern demands or else face secession. Were they B, anti-coercionists who sought compromises with the North until they became untenable? Or was it C, unconditional unionists who opposed secession at all costs? Fast ultimatumists, anti-coercionists, or unconditional unionists. What were they from the northwestern part of the state? Three, two, one. 
the Northwestern counties bordered over 400 miles with slavery-free states. Most delegates to the 1861 convention fell into the later, latter camp, C, unconditional unionists. According to the book I mentioned earlier, The Fifth Border State, page 67, a representative from Monogalia predicted that if Virginia seceded, the enslaved would quickly discover that without the Constitution, their motives, quote, motives to flee across the line will be increased because the Negro will know that whenever he crosses that line, he will be free. There will be no fugitive slave law for his recovery, and he will know it. End quote. Will it not, sir, make a hostile border for Virginia and enable slaves to escape more rapidly because more securely? Will it not virtually bring Canada to our doors? End quote. Another delegate from the Northwest stated, quote, African slavery as it exists in the southern states is essential to American liberty. I tell your friends, it hurts my mouth to say that. So that's the answer. Number six. Scroll up here. Tax reform became part of the secession debate. The Northwesterners argued that if they were going to fight the Union to protect slavery, the slaveholders should bear the cost. In 1859, the Commonwealth's tax on slaves amounted to about $326,487.60 in revenue. If the Northwestern delegation's proposed tax reform passed, how much tax would that have increased to in the following years? I'm going to give you, it's a multiple, multiple options here, A, B, C. All right. It sat at $326,487.60, call it $330,000 on tax on slaves. If the Northwestern delegation had its way, would it be twice that at $750,500? Would it be a little more than three, three times that at a million? Or C, would it be a million seven hundred fifty thousand five hundred, which is nearly six times the existing of roughly three hundred and thirty thousand? How much would the Northwestern delegation's proposed tax reform move taxation on slaves? A, B, or C? Three, two, one. It's B. A million dollars. And that's a conservative number, according to my source in the Fifth Border State book, page 72. So imagine going from 330000 to a million. Uh, and that was in those days, dollars. All right. Seven, the tax reform proposal got a majority pledge of support on April 11, 1861. What national event prevented bringing it up on the floor for a floor vote the following day. In other words, what happened on April 12, 1861 that prevented this uh, tax reform from being brought to a floor vote? Was it A, secessionists attack on Fort Sumter, South Carolina? Or was it B, President Abraham Lincoln's proclamation calling forth the state militias to the sum of 75,000 troops in order to suppress the Southern Rebellion? A, Fort Sumter, B, state militias. Three, 
to one, it was the attack on Fort Sumter. According to the Fifth Border State book, page 73, quote, few delegates sought to discuss piddling issues like taxation. Only allegiance to Virginia concerned them. All right, we're almost done. We have question eight now. On February 13, 1861, delegates representing all counties in Virginia met to decide how the state would respond to recent events, especially Abraham Lincoln's election and South Carolina's secession. They voted to remain in the Union and hoped that they could reach a compromise to defuse the situation. Two months later, the same men passed the Virginia Ordinance of Secession, dated April 17, 1861, which declared that, quote, the bond between Virginia and the United States of America under the U.S. Constitution is dissolved. Delegates at the Virginia Convention of 1861 voted 88 to 55 to approve the ordinance on April 17th as a statewide referendum confirmed secession on May 23rd. This meant the Northwestern counties needed to act quickly in order to remain part of the Union. It was passed on April 17th, and it was going to, to take effect on, April, on May 23rd. What percentage of white men in the northwestern counties voted to stay in the Union and not follow the lower part of the state in seceding? Was it 52%? Was it 67%? Or was it 75%? All right, percentage of white men in the northwestern counties who voted to stay in the Union. A, 52%, B, 67%, C, 75%. Three, two, one. The answer is B, 67%. In some counties, however, it was 75%. Notably, party allegiance was not a factor in determining how people voted in, on secession. And my source, again, is the Fifth Border State, page 84. Now, question nine. Within three days of the vote to remain in the Union, General George B. McClellan's army occupied the region, notably Wheeling, Morgantown, Parkersburg, and Clarksburg. Pouring oil on troubled waters, McClellan said, quote, I have ordered troops to cross the river. They come as your friends and brothers, and as enemies only to armed rebels who are preying upon you. Your homes, your families, and your property are safe under our protection. All your rights shall be religiously respected, end quote, which included the right to own slaves. The capital had to be moved from Richmond. So where was the first capital in what would eventually become West Virginia? Was it Charleston? A, Charleston. Was it B, Morgantown? Was it C, Parkersburg? Or D, Wheeling? Charleston, Morgantown, Parkersburg, or Wheeling? Three, two, one. Wheeling would serve as capital for seven years. On March 28, 1870, state officials met at the levee on, in Wheeling to board the Mountain Boy, a steamer laden with state records and other properties, to make the journey down the Ohio River and up the Great Kanawha to the new capital city of Charleston. 
And our final question. Technically, the part of Virginia that stayed with the Union was still Virginia. Rejecting secession required reorganization of the state, which it did on June 13th in what's called the Declaration of the People of Virginia Represented in Convention at Wheeling. The first governor's <clears throat> inaugural address did not mention slavery, rather emphasized loyalty to the Union. The June 13th Declaration authorized Governor Pierpoint, Pierpoint, Pierpont, <laughs> Pierpont to vacate disloyal state and county level officers, but he couldn't find their replacements. Many pre-war elites rejected the thought of submitting to the Lincoln-aligned regime. With all this in mind, and considering the esteem in which the Union-loyal citizens held Virginia, they named their new state West Virginia. Now, Kanawha was a strong contender for the state name. Here comes the question. What were the others? I'm going to give you four, and you can choose three. The four contenders, main contenders after Kanawha, were A, Allegheny, B, Appalachia, C, Vandalia, or D, Western Virginia. Pick three out of the four. Three, two, one. Everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy because all of these were considered. <laughs> Others that were considered were Augusta, Columbia, and New Virginia. So uh, I, I sort of tried a different technique with this month's quiz, giving like a whole lot of background and then asking a question. I hope this worked for you. Um, if I were a presidential candidate and someone asked me what made West Virginia choose the union over secession, I would confidently say that it was slavery, but not on moral opposition to the institution. When the enslavers used their legislative power to extract disproportionate taxes from those in the Northwest while demanding them to provide free protection against the federal army, they forced their fellow Virginians to remain in the union. Most West Virginians approved of slavery and actually expected the Union to preserve the institution, as did residents of the other four border states, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. That was a nuance that I did not, I, I just never picked up on. It was always muddy to me. And I did mention that I would um, give you some of my recommended podcasts and, uh, and a book that I enjoyed on my COVID sickbed with my knitting needles in my hand. Um, with the Napoleon movie out, which is getting lackluster reviews, but nevertheless, it, um, the new Napoleon movie is out. I thought you might enjoy this series on the emperor from the real historians at the rest is history podcast. They gave a three part series and I have linked to all three. Part one is young Napoleon, the teenage revolutionary. Number two is young Napoleon, the shadow of the guillotine. And part three is Napoleon in Egypt. And finally, another book that's tied to the news is um, called Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century by Drew Gilpin Faust. Harvard's in the news a good bit right now. So this is a memoir of a privileged white girl growing up in segregated Virginia 
who became active in the civil rights, student, and anti-war movements, and eventually became a historian of the very conflicts that helped to shape the world she grew up in. The author, Drew Gilpin Faust, became the first female president of Harvard. I listened to the audiobook, which she narrated, and that made it um, more special to me. All right, so that is our January 2024 quiz. I hope you... Uh, did well on it. If, if not, maybe you learned something. I'd always love to hear from uh, listeners. So get in touch with me. For, at, you can do that at my Substack, And um, I look forward to talking to you in the next edition, which will be mid-January. Until then, friends, thanks for listening. Bye now.